0: Hey there, I'm Amina Kaplan, the woman who will introduce you by the wrong name, even if I've known you for 10 years. <laughs> 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 and then I will crack up laughing. Oh my
1: God.
0: <laughs> and probably not apologize because I'll, be, I I I'll be in such disbelief that I just introduced a very good friend by a name that isn't theirs.
1: Everyone has a story to tell. We have a bottle of wine and an ear to listen. Join a couple of dolts as we dote out some anecdotes. And welcome to Anecdotal Dote. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Anecdotal Dote, the podcast that celebrates the stories and storytellers in all of us. I'm John Seidenberg, the guy who had a teacher accidentally become Marilyn Monroe in the first grade. Joining me on this podcast is the Daryl Zanuck to my Marilyn Monroe, Laura Arnold.
2: (laughs) How do you accidentally become Marilyn Monroe?
1: In first grade, we had this wall that had a, um, it was basically just a tree. And so every season, she would have all of us decorate a leaf. So if it was summer, she would have us decorate like a full green leaf and put our name on it and make it whatever we wanted. For fall, she would have us do multi, like multicolor, like orange and yellow and brown leaves. Um, For winter, she would have us do snowflakes. And then for spring, she'd have us do like um, pretty ones with like little flowers and stuff on them. So that way we could learn the seasons and like be artistic and all that. And so she would have to climb up onto this air vent um, that was like the air conditioning unit for the room um, to hang up all of these things. And so one day I remember we're all standing there and she's one at a time. She's calling us up to hand her to hand over our leaf. And then we hear a hmm. And then all of a sudden a whoosh of air comes up from it and blows her skirt up over her head. And so she's. She's standing there and the exact opposite of what a skirt is supposed to cover was being was being covered. Um, And so she like had to fight the skirt down uh, and then move over to the side to make sure that she didn't uh, balloon herself up again. Um,
2: (laughs) That's hilarious and very unfortunate.
1: (laughs) This is our first guest with a Wikipedia page yeah insanity
2: i know this is where i pulled all my fancy information for this bio from wikipedia Although so now... i hope it's accurate
1: <laughs> well now i want to go on to wikipedia and create myself a profile um and then i can say that i once interviewed our guest for my podcast And then it will connect me to her on the Wikipedia page. (laughs) Well, I, I will say, um, we should probably, um, in, in case listeners were, um, listening or saw the time code for this particular episode, you'll notice this episode is longer every single second bar the five minutes you've been listening so far is absolutely (laughs) worth it we talked about so many incredible things with with our guest i almost said her name this one is a longer episode but there was just too much that we uh couldn't take out
2: yeah absolutely some good really really good content
1: yeah so we've drummed this up a lot so (laughs) laura why don't you introduce our guest
2: Our guest today is Amina Kaplan. She grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, where she graduated from Avondale High School for the Performing Arts. She also trained in the Experimental Theater Wing at Tisch School of the Arts at New York University, and later graduated from the Academy of Art University Film School in San Francisco, California. Drumming since she was 12, she was a member of the original American cast of Stomp was the West Coast drum coach for Blue Man Group. Her film and television credits include performing on Oprah, Conan O'Brien, the Academy Awards, the AMAs, as well as appearances on hit shows such as The Office, Harry's Law, and Law & Order, and Gamora's Mother in Avengers Infinity War. Currently, she's the resident director of The Lion King on the third national tour, we are thrilled to welcome actor, director, choreographer, and drummer Amina Kaplan to the podcast. <laughs>
1: Well, for me, the worst part is whenever you, like, someone that you know you recognize them, but you can't quite place them. And so then it's, you you use a lot of just very generic pronouns to talk to them (laughs) until they either hint at what their name is, or you just walk away being like, that person has no idea. Or they know (laughs) that I don't know who they are. So that's, I feel you on that one.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm pretty good. I try to be pretty good normally, but... Some Some good friends of mine have had their names butchered in public by me. that's for sure
1: <laughs> Well, my co-host Rebecca knows exactly what i'm what you're talking about.
2: Thanks, John <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> You grew up in Atlanta
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: and um so what was what was that like because i'm I'm currently in Kentucky right now, and i I've mm-hmm. grown up uh you know not quite as southern as you, mm-hmm. um, but what what was that like for you?
0: Yeah um, it was definitely a mixed bag of tricks, um, and I say that because I was a little black girl growing up in a pretty segregated environment in the '80s in Atlanta, when it was still you know pretty segregated. Um, but you know, Atlanta's a chocolate city, and it was you know it was evolving right underneath my feet growing up there. And as it, as it so happened on the other side of the coin, I went to one of the best performing arts high schools um, you know, in the area, if not the best and Avondale high school for the performing arts. And they're actually a bunch of the alumni that are working actors right now, like working dancers or whatever we're all doing. And, um, it just turned out to be a really good school. It, um, just gave me a great education and gave me this like idea that I could have a career in the arts. And so, yeah. Um, so Atlanta was both, um challenging and then ultimately it was awesome because it launched me into the career that I have
1: and so you've been drumming since you were you were little
0: yeah yeah
1: and what 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 was that you know because I feel like everyone always has a connection to a certain instrument yeah what was what made the drums
0: for you you know that's a really good question I think like the drums kind of found me I think I was just a, a drummer all along um like, uh, I started beating on things when I was like nine years old. That's my earliest Mm. memory of like making beats. And I would just tear up the school desk and just, you know, just making beats on the school desk and like, um, making beats on the kitchen sink or on the countertops and just the stuff that you do when you're that age. And then at age 12, I learned my first, um, groove on a drum set, both blue sky. Um, u2 song and um and you know you just sort of piece it together and my family wasn't like hey let's get her a drum set they were like shut up shut up <laughs> shut up like, so, so like um so you know i just kind of did it that's why i think drums found me was because i didn't have any training or anything like that and funny story um I don't know if it's funny, but it's part of my drum life. So, but I was probably about 15 or whatever. And I was, car- I used to carry around drumsticks all the time. Maybe I was 15 or six. I don't know. Anyway, I, we were at the UN, at the Model UN, you, you know, like nerd, real nerd stuff. And like, oh yeah. Yeah. And so I was a delegate at the Model UN. And um, so I had my drumsticks out and I'm whacking away on something. And this guy comes along, taps me on the shoulder, he's like, come here, just come here. And uh, takes me, I, not kidding, downstairs into his office turns out he's the custodian at this facility like he's the facilities manager wherever Mm -hmm. the model Ewan was being held and like he sits down at his desk and he's got like a little drum pad there and some drumsticks and he's like all right sit down boom and he just starts showing me some stuff and I didn't read drum music like I mean I read music from um I read a little bit of drum music but I read music from playing clarinet but I just was like And he just started putting marks on the page and showing me just interesting stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah. And I think I still have that piece of paper that he gave me when I, you know, like with the little drum lesson that he had for me. And I feel like that's kind of how my, all of my drumming has been is I've just learned on the fly from other drummers. Um, I learned so much in stomp, like some of the best drummers ever, 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 ever are in, in, are in stomp. And, um, they taught me so much and they're all from such different schools of thought that they were amazing to learn from. Yeah, there's several people who have heard me playing, walked over to me and been like, stop doing that. I'm (laughs) going to show you how to do it right.
1: (laughs) So talk about how did you, how did you get involved in Stomp? How did that, how did that come about for you?
0: Yeah, good one. Um, Well, I was a sophomore at Tisch School of the Arts uh, in New York at um, NYU. I was in experimental theater being weird and rolling around on the floor and trying to figure out like what it was and why we were doing that. (laughs) Um, And just at that time, this sort of wild drumming show had just come over from England and they put up a flyer. They they had been there for like a month or so in the the original British cast and they put up a flyer uh, that they were looking for. Let me see if I can say it right. Dancers who like to beat on things and drummers who like to jump around. And uh, my friend was like, this belongs to you. And I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He didn't say it quite like that. But um, he was like, I think this is you or whatever he said. It's been 25 years. But um, so I just went to the audition. I was 19. I just went to the audition just like. Um, a little bit cocky, a little bit stupid and you know and 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 totally without perspective as to where I was and what I was walking into, you know and so all of that combined into me getting a gig you know and it turned out to be a really good um, to fit my skill set well and mm-hmm. show me that there was a a life beyond um, sort of straight ahead musical theater, which is what I thought I was going to end up doing or trying or doing sketch comedy or something but You know, right at that time, 25 years ago, this whole new genre of physical theater was burgeoning. Blue Man had been around for four years before. Cirque had been around for like a year or two before. Um, And they were just starting to come into America when Stomp came around. Um, And then a couple years later, Lion King, uh, Noise Funk, all those shows that came. So as it turned out, just getting into, and not to um, forget about De La Guarda and Fuerza Bruta and all those shows, but. It just turned out like um, I was just right there at the right time when physical theater took off. So I was able to jump in that lane and, and, and ride, ride that wave um, for a long time.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, that's and so awesome. did, did your being in Stomp, did that lead to you joining Blue Man Group?
0: Well, I am actually a drum coach for Blue Man Group. So I train Blue Men is what I do for them. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I didn't know this, but, and I hope that I don't say this wrong. So if anyone from Blue Man hears this, please, you know, send a correction email or whatever it is. (laughs) Um, But they had some, they, Blue Men were always taught internally by other Blue Men. And um, they, they didn't really have like a proper drum school uh until they came out to the west coast they were doing some casting out there and this was about 18 years ago or so and uh, a friend of mine who's six foot tall wanted to audition for the show and he was like i'm not a drummer can you you know show me the the material i looked at the sheet music i was like okay i think i can help you out you know i trained him up for a little bit he went in for his audition and this is the way he told it to me i hope i'm telling it correctly but he says that they said to him that uh, they thought he was a very good actor but that he wasn't a very good drummer and and then they asked him how long he'd been playing, and he was like two weeks. And they were like two weeks. And then they were like, wait a second, who's your teacher? And then he told them about me. And um, and so apparently I had a knack for um, getting guys to fake it and look pretty good faking it. Um, uh, but um, they they called me at first actually, John, that you mentioned it. They asked me to audition for the show, and then over the phone. And then I described myself to them, and they were like, oh no, probably not. You know, I'm like I'm not the right <laughs> size basically Mm -hmm. there is a female blue man but you know you really have to be like of a certain stature otherwise Mm -hmm. you sort of you lose the uniformity of the character you know anyway so they were like well what, what how'd you feel about training guys for us so that just led to this awesome you know 18 year long freelance relationship where we set up basically what beca- has become known as the Blue Man Drum school so I'm very proud of that experience and the only reason why I'm not still doing it is because I'm on the road now with the Lion King otherwise mm. I would still be um coaching for Blue Man um wherever wherever they would want me to do it cuz it's awesome
1: it's mm. so you are you are hitting all of these transitions so perfectly with this um <laughs> so um so you go from Because you had talked about earlier about like musical theater potentially being a a path for you, and it kind of has become that with you being involved in The Lion Mm. King. Yeah. Um, So talk about about like that. So what does it mean to be um, the the director for or the resident director for that Mm -hmm. show?
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll clarify also. Yes, I am the resident director for the Broadway tour, the North American tour. Yeah, my boss mm-hmm. is actually um, what my job in New York City. Because um, okay. that's the yeah, that's the flagship show. That's the 22 year old um, show. Although my tour, you know, the Rafiki tour, we we've, we've, you know, the show has technically been on the road for about 21 years. But mm-hmm. I, I'm uh, the resident director for the third national tour. And, um, essentially what I do is live with the show and I am Julie Tamer's proxy, uh, at the show. So my, like, I guess my official job title is to maintain the artistic integrity of the show. So, um, I'm basically trying to make sure Julie's vision continues to look like Julie's vision the way that she saw it. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. So, it's uh, it's more than what like normally a stage manager might do, and certainly less than what Julie Taymor herself or the director would do. It's, some, it's sort of, it's somewhere in between creativity and management, and um, and I don't do it alone. I have um, work husbands. I work really closely with the musical director, who's handling obviously music, and uh, the resident dance supervisor, who is handling Garth Fagan's choreography. Um, I don't give notes on choreography. Like I might you know, have thoughts about uh, sort of the way the ensemble hyenas are, you know, playing a specific moment during Be Prepared with Scar, and I maybe think we can all have more energy or whatever it is, you know, Um, but I don't um, say to the dancer, hey, I think you need to soutenu a little bit more. That's the resident dance supervisor's job, and um, so if that kind of helps you see how those jobs work, and then I take care of all the actors, like I have, um, I, I, you know, give all the acting notes and all that stuff and so
1: and so to to make sure that you are you're maintaining the the quality and the vision that Julie Taymor had Mm -hmm. was that is there like a is there a manual for that or is that you have a Mm -hmm. discussion with her how does that how do you Mm -hmm. know what that level is
0: yeah good question um her assistant took copious notes and so yeah, one of the first things that got passed on to me by my predecessor was a stack of pages about an inch thick that are Julie Taymor's original notes. Wow. And they're all typed out and it's all from years and various pages so it's it's not like looking through like a uniform encyclopedia. It's like looking through a collection of notes. Wow. Um, but you read them and you try your best to memorize it honestly like and not like sort of by rote, like, this is what this says. No, but you memorize her intentions and you memorize, you know, her concepts and her um, research. And, like, you know, you want to be able to, if I'm training a new actor into whatever, into Mufasa, I'm going to want to be able to tell this actor where his costume comes from, like, where the, um, what Julie's inspiration for his costume was. I'm going to want to be able to talk really in-depth about the, the puppets and, like, you know, um, how they work and what Julie's intention behind them was and how they integrate, blah, 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 physically. Like, you know, so I, so so yeah, you get Julie's notes and you get trained by, there's, um, it goes like the hierarchy works like Julie Taymor, then there is an associate director and then there's a resident director. And it's just, that's just what happens. I think it's just sort of what's happening now in modern theater, that, high, that structure at the top. Um, but I also think it's what happens when you have a show that is, that gets as big as the Lion King, where it just has too many moving parts mm-hmm. and it would take a particular skill set at person to be able to be all things that the Lion King needed, um, on the road. And so it's a, so I think it's just a, it's a, it's a factor of necessity basically.
1: So with you being with the tour, are you watching that performance every night or are you watching it? How does that work?
0: Yeah. Good questions. Uh, Good questions all. Um, You know, I tend to be fed and love the theater. I love like the dark room. It's kind of like my temple. And Mm -hmm. so I tend to watch the show a lot. And, And when I first got the job, I watched the show every night. It was my, I felt my duty to, and I needed to be quote unquote off book, off show as soon as I could be because the cast is depending on you to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, if you don't know the show, then you can't, it's very difficult to give somebody who's been in the show for 15 years notes. <laughs> right. I and mean, I've been with the show for about two years now. And um, so that first four or five months, yeah, you couldn't pull me out of the theater. Um, but uh, now I will mostly um, sort of take breaks and watch um, what I, I guess like if I'm focusing on a certain thing or if an actor's trying something new or if there's a trouble spot or I'll make sure that I see that spot, but you have to kind of clean your brain a little bit. Otherwise you get blind, you know, if you're yeah. trying to watch it that much. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think so many people, cause it wasn't until I started getting more involved in the business itself and started doing longer running shows. A lot of people don't think about the fact that like, like the amount of distance between when the show was originally workshopped and and mounted 20 mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. There's so much distance between that and so mm-hmm. making sure that that the intentions there mm-hmm. Like with something like lion king or wicked or or phantom that's been on for decades mm-hmm. You know, how do you make sure that that still is continued? So that's so that's such a vital job to Yeah, the, you
0: have you have directors on board. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: that's that's so cool. That's so cool You have not just been a, a resident a director you know making sure that that the show is matching the height of other directors you are in on your own uh, a mm-hmm. distinguished director as well oh, thank you um, i do
0: okay i'm building I'm <laughs> my resume
1: <laughs> <laughs> what makes you and this can be as a director it can be as a choreographer it can be um as an actor anything at all what makes you say yes to a project
0: yeah good question um, so the, in, the, in the spirit of Michael Caine and just all the great, you know, people that have come before me, basically, I like to work. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you put a job in front of me, the chances that I'm going to try and find a way to get it into my life is about 100%. In general, I'm focused more on what I think I can bring to a project and what I, how I think my skill set will benefit this project. And so what I'm looking for usually is something really physical. Um, And really musical and and that tells a linear story lately. I've been um, Getting paired with writers who have scripts that need a director who can choreograph or a director who is physical who can you know Who can create spectacle and but who also understands story? So Mm -hmm. lately i've worked with a couple of people and we've developed some projects One was a breakdance project that was certainly in development before I came on board, but uh, the writer and I took a great leap towards getting it on stage in a cohesive way. Cause it was this super dense um, storyline um, that was set in the medical field, but it was starring break dancers. So you had to have these like, you know, actors who were capable of doing, and he didn't want fake breakers where it was just like somebody doing the wave. No, he wanted <laughs> real break dancers. So the, the casting hunt to find this, what I call hybrid performer who is, highly skilled in a skill set that's non-traditionals, you know, was awesome. And so that's what my, that's the world I come from is that hybrid world. So that's the stuff that I'm seeking out.
1: You were on an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, So what um, is this, was that because of Stomp or what Mm -hmm. was... And and how yeah. was that? Because there seems to have been a resurgence of love and appreciation for him recently. Um, so what was what was that like?
0: Yeah, a couple things. One is um, my my friend Noah Harpster actually wrote the the movie that stars Tom Hanks, the new one that I think they just won a Golden Globe. Yeah, so shout out to those guys. So yeah, there is a resurgence going on right now. And I'm not sure, but at the, right around the same time, like maybe it was right before. I heard about the hype of his documentary coming out and his movie coming out. Our publicist from Stomp gave us, she sent us a bunch of old pictures of us on Mr. Rogers' show. Basically, Mr. Rogers just wanted to visit Stomp. We were one of his neighbors. And um, yeah, totally. So he came to New York and we had a cast of us there. And um, it was me and Matt Pollock and Tony James and Michael Paris, and I'm trying to remember, Kim Marie Lynch was there, I think, and Everett Bradley. Like, this is the guys and girls that got to do it. And he was just dope. He just came in, and we just taught him some things from the show. And I I I think there were a few of us, but I was definitely one of the people that got to, like, stand with him and teach him something and get him to you know your name. He's all, hello, Amina. Hi, Fred. You know, like that kind <laughs> of thing. <whatever. laughs> but... And it turned out even on the day, cause I, I didn't necessarily grow up on um, watching Mr. Rogers like that. I was more an electric company kid, honestly. And then I think before that I wasn't really a TV kid. I was more of an outside go get scraped up and bloodied kind of kid. Um, <laughs> I just didn't until MTV. I didn't really spend that much time watching television, honestly. And I'm, I guess I'm back to that. Cause I'm not really a TV watcher now, but, um, anyway, um, even though I didn't grow up with him like that, I knew who he was. Of course, he was stunning to be on set with like just his energy as a human being. Like he just, he was impactful on the day. Like we knew something awesome had just happened. We were just totally blown away by him and, and the power that he had. Like he was, he, he could shift a room which tells you the power of any leader, and it's mm-hmm. just what you do with that power and how you handle it. And he had a very good handling of his own power, and he um, used it um, for good. He wielded his superpowers for good, and uh, it, was, it was it was an amazingly impactful day. And uh, a couple of years later, we got to visit him in Pittsburgh, um, Pennsylvania, which is where his he was from. That's where they shot. We were on tour. And it wasn't even all of us that had done his show. It was like just a few of us who had done it. We called him up and we asked if we could come to the show or to his office and visit. And he said, yes. And so we roll in there and he's got this like totally modest sized office, maybe a little bit bigger than this bedroom I'm sitting in right now. And um, just covered wall to wall, just covered in, you know, cards and gifts and all things from kids and just like pictures and crazy and hadn't seen the guy in two years. He's Fred Rogers. I'm nobody. And he stands up from, from behind his desk and he outstretches his arms and he goes, Amina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh and like, yeah. Sweetest story yeah. Ever. And then I like give him this hug, like he's an old friend. And I was like, this cat is like, he's the real deal. And it, it just proves in my opinion the the balance of things because we all want to think that everything is so negative or corruptible and we're so invested right now in like destroying each other and like taking down even good people you have to find something wrong with them and we can't wait to find something wrong with every person and you know and not and some of these people need to be exposed but you know you, you understand what i'm saying but it, oh yeah and but fred is total proof that like you cannot have evil without good because you don't have a barometer by which to judge one without the other and Mm. he was firmly on the other side and he was very human i'm sure his wife would be able to tell you you know about how he peed on the seat i have no idea but like (laughs) he really was like a good person and i'm really glad that we have not decided to tear him down you know Mm. and frankly that there's nothing to tear down good god i've got fingers crossed
1: That's it. That's, that's an incredible, what an incredible experience and what a, oh gosh, I had cold chills the entire time you were telling that. Yeah. Um, Oh, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful.
0: I am much better in the arts. I'm probably, I'm terrible at jobs outside of the arts. Every time I try, I'm failing miserably and not that I can't find something, but In 30 years, I've had more success just staying focused in the arts. And my thing was to um, do this rather than anything else. And so I did whatever it took to Mm -hmm. whatever I could do. And Mm -hmm. what I knew how to do was play drums. I knew how to put a few dance steps together. And I knew how to act. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I used to stay employed. And so, yeah, that's that's what my resume reflects. And that's Mm -hmm. why it can be hard to kind of like pin it down. Now everybody's a breakdancer, artist, comedian, or a aerialist, Shakespearean actress, you know, dolphin trainer, or like whatever, whatever, whatever gets you paid, like whatever yeah. gets you paid. And, you know, or you're a stuntman, mother, you know, blogger, like whatever it is that you are like, and, you know, that's what that's what mine was. But directing allows me to consolidate it. Yeah
1: yeah yeah I I remember in college so many of my professors would say you need to focus on one thing because I'm I very much consider myself an actor or a jack of all trades master of none because I direct I act I design um, set design light design sound design prop design and I for me it was always a thing of I have to work in the arts I can't I can't I can't not be involved in the arts in some capacity. Right. And, so, and the number of times that they would say, you need to focus on one thing. And I was like, but I, I want to work.
0: Before you go on, I just wanted to just one thing that you said, like, I'm with you 100%, except that one thing in the beginning, you were like, I am a jack of all trades, master of none, because I bet you're a master at a bunch of those things and that you should be called a professional at a bunch of those things as opposed to a jack. Uh, of I, him, you know
1: i i appreciate that outlook on that and that's yeah it's i i i always tend to um undersell myself um so that's uh so you're you're probably more than likely right on that <laughs> so thank yeah, you, you absolutely for, right for as bringing... somebody who
2: knows john very well he's very <laughs> yeah. masterful at a lot of things
0: <laughs> yeah so own own that and don't be shy because who are they they're just player haters you know it's like if like, if I didn't like Justin Timberlake, I'm a player hater. Cause that dude's awesome. <laughs> I forget it. He's awesome. Like, you, you know. I love
1: that. Um, and so the last, the last thing of your career I want to touch on, um, just mm-hmm. because it's me being a complete geek. Um, how did you talk about you getting on The Office? Okay. Like, how yeah, did just, that happen?
0: Just, um. Just hard work, elbow grease, and kind of being in the right place at the right time in my career, basically. Um, I was an actor in L.A. doing my thing. And um, I definitely always kind of had a relationship with acting where I was going to go as far as I could being Amina. Um. Um, you know, dark skin, natural hair, crooked tooth, the whole nine. I was like, I didn't, I don't think, have as a deep enough range in order to feel like I was going to be some amazing character actor like Viola or Meryl Streep or something like this. Um, So I was determined also to kind of represent myself in a certain way or represent this type of woman. I wanted to see me on screen and not a modified, you know, um, assimilated version of myself and my blackness. Mm -hmm. So I say all of that to say that I was in the trenches for years. Mm-hmm. Um, when this audition came up and when the audition came up i think i was just a professional actor who was ready for the audition um mm-hmm. the callback was a different story the callback i had friends and basically um being a drummer i was in a band um with um a few other working actors because we were the only ones who could stand our schedule <laughs> that's why i say it like that it's like we're, we'd be like sorry i got an audition okay and no one's mad If you're like going off to like shoot something, everyone's like, no band practice today. I'm going to be on TV show. Okay. You know, whereas you can't really be that way in a proper band, you know? So we played together in this actor band and, uh, you know, we thought we were great. And Craig Robinson is a musician and Mm. we're musicians. And so he used to come to our shows and he was friends with, is friends with Malcolm Barrett, who was the rapper in our band. I didn't really know him. You know, I tend to kind of play drums and go home. Um, But he was, um, you know, they were all good friends, boys would all hang out and stuff. And so at my callback, Craig was there. And I think Craig recognized me and absolutely put in a good word for me and is probably more responsible for me getting on that show than than I realized. But in terms of getting that first audition and that first call, I give a lot of credit to just staying in the trenches, staying true to myself and the image that I wanted to put out there. And that the casting office totally got that and saw that as well. And we're like, yeah, let's bring her in. And so, yeah, hope, hopefully that answered that. Just a little yeah, bit of yeah. luck and a little bit of hard work.
1: Yeah. And so for when you were first cast as Val, did they tell you that it was a recurring character? What did you no. What did you know? Okay. that
0: no, 's it's really funny. People, I've been asked that question before and, um, the funny is that if you watch the very first episode that I'm on in the like behind me over my right shoulder, there's two guys there, one white guy, one black guy, black guy's got big afro. I forget their names. I, I really wish I could remember their names because when I tell this story, it like, just sounds like I don't give a about them, but they were, <laughs> they're, they're nice guys for sure. And I'm sure they're doing awesome. But they were the, the story, the alternate storyline provided that Val didn't work out and um yeah and so i think i passed the test and i had like a couple of episodes like to sort of get through this like screen test essentially i did like mm-hmm. an on camera screen test and a live screen test and um fortunately for me they dug the character they dug what i was doing with it i guess and um and we moved forward but no i did not know that it was going to catch on or, or work work well with them or anything it was all kind of coming very quickly at me, frankly, because mm-hmm. I was so focused on other stuff.
1: Right, know? right. That's incredible. Yeah. And you ended up being on two seasons, I think 14 episodes, yeah. something like that.
0: Yeah, I think I did. I shot 15 and aired 14. Yeah. And I don't know, I forget what the one episode that I remember shooting that I, I'm not sure if it aired, but, I've, you know, if IMDB says it didn't. I guess it didn't. You know. <laughs>
1: that's incredible that's incredible so amina
2: Um, what is like for you personally like what is the big difference for you filming tv versus movies
0: yeah that's a good question the main difference between the so those two different types of shows like so a tv show is like you are joining a cast of um actors who know that show very very well and especially you know for the older shows, now, if you're doing a pilot or something like that, it's a little different you're creating that thing almost like a theater company and on the on the set of a TV show it's a um, much faster pace you're in and out of there much faster at, from the actor's point of view. but the d p and the writers really in my and the showrunner really are um, pivotal to like your experience on a TV show because they Again, they know that show better than better than any guest actor or guest director or anything like that. And so um, that was a fascinating thing to learn and to be a part of. Like you're joint, you're kind of joining a theater company, a TV theater mm-hmm. company that has its own sort of built-in culture, and um, they work very fast on TV. Um, on a big show like Infinity War, or even on even on small you know indie films um it is a much slower process however i find it to be really intimate in terms of like if this the smaller the movie is the more you get close to the crew and Mm. the and the dp and get it you know you can really get involved with the tech of it um but it moves much slower and but infinity war was certainly the biggest show i've ever worked on and biggest show anyone's ever worked on it's <laughs> like you know those were a billion dollars between them those two movies yeah. and it it's stunning how um fun <laughs> it is like when when you have all of that at your disposal to to create and mm-hmm. I I got along well with um, the Russo brothers, which is why I got. I think they, you know, um, got I got a little credit in game because I did some. They invited me to do come back. I did an on camera part, and then I did a bunch of off camera motion capture stuff, like for Zoe Saldana's character, and um, and so I got to be just on set a lot more than I would have. And they were very generous with just letting me hang out and talk. And I talked to the tech guys a lot. And I learned a lot about motion capture and, um, you know, CD imaging and all that. And it was, um, so it's just a, a slower experience where you can kind of soak in the tech like that. Whereas mm-hmm. TV is, you're in your trailer and you're out and you shoot and you're gone and you're, you know, yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit more like that. But that, yeah, hopefully that was a, gave you a good idea. It's, it's yeah, about how different well, and- they are.
1: And because in Infinity War you were Gamora's mother, Zoe, Z- mm-hmm. Zoe Saldana's mother, mm-hmm. um, and then um, you were doing the the technical motion capture stuff for mm-hmm. that, for for Zoe Saldana's character mm-hmm. in, the, in the second one. So what is like what is it like? Because because famously, like especially Marvel is very. Tight ship, tight lip, because that was that was the culmination of 20 something movies. So I'm sure it was nuts being in there.
0: Unbelievable uh, security, John. You could mm-hmm. not, it was unbelievable. It was like you to get the audition, you get an email first that says you have to sign this NDA then you go and you get to look at the sides. I think let me see if I remember this properly. Some of the sides you could actually download. Some of them you just had to have them on your phone. Like you couldn't you couldn't print them out. I think that's true. And but all of them had passwords and you had to, you know, NDA before you even got it. And if you know if if you were auditioning for a Uh, superhero character which i also did a bunch of that because i was i knew i knew that casting office pretty well so i i I had auditioned for a bunch of things a bunch of things i'm sure i can talk about a few of them now because they were their characters i wish i you know knew the names of the characters a little bit more but there was an evil woman she was in blue and I, i forget what her, who ended up playing her, but I auditioned for that character as well. A few other things, some stuff on Black Panther. Um, but ultimately what we found was Gamora's mom. And um, finally I get, I get the job. And then you, you sign an NDA before you get your script. You sign the contract, you drive down to your costume fitting. You, you sign like whatever they make you sign on your way into Pinewood Studio in Georgia you get to the wardrobe for your fitting before you go in the building. The AD that you're walking with or wardrobe assistant has you signing something else on your way into the building. Then when you get into the room, like, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that was it. Like, so I had a contract right before I went in the room. And then once I was in the room, I think there was one more stage of security before I start. Yeah, it was like that, but I did bump into, uh, Chadwick Boseman on the way out of my fitting and that was kind of awesome
1: oh that is that is incredible
0: (laughs) I was like hello
1: (laughs) and so because because you're a theater person um what was it like working on a show because I'm not I'm obviously I mean I I watched Infinity War both of them this weekend actually um and I saw you on screen and I was like oh my gosh that's so cool but Were you doing a lot of, like, green screen room stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah. How is
1: that working comparative to, like, you're used to being in an environment on stage?
0: Yeah, it was really fun, honestly. It felt a lot like theater because of the way we were, because of the way motion capture is shot. Um, And I'm not going to pretend to be some expert. I just happened to get this opportunity to work on this huge show and got, you know, dunked right in the deep end of the current technology. But essentially, I I played Gamora's mom on screen. So I worked with the little girl. And uh, when we were all in green paint, we looked like family. And, Mm -hmm. um, So as it turned out, um, Zoe and I are the exact same size. Um, I think my feet are a little bit bigger than hers, but otherwise, height-wise, body-type-wise, we were the same. And um, she was away in Australia doing Avatar and was not able to come and do some reshoots with Josh Brolin, who played Thanos. And they needed to redo all of her scenes with Thanos. And Thanos, obviously, is a mythical character, and so he's huge. And so um, all that stuff was shot um, in the motion capture um, room in the um, studio. And so basically any time in Infinity War where you see Thanos talking to Gamora, most of the times, there's a few scenes that I didn't work on, but most of the scenes um, were done with with me and Josh Brolin. So Mm -hmm. I would be there and like on the screen you would see Um, my body would be, you know, and they have sort of a mock-up of Gamora, but it would be my body. And then you'd see Thanos there um, off to the side of the soundstage. We were on like a, you know, just on a blank soundstage, fully decked in the motion capture suits. And um, it was just awesome. I got to work with a, a few different people as well. And I'm so bad with like names that I'm not even going to attempt because I'll just butcher all <laughs> character names and all actor names and stuff. But I, I worked mostly with Josh Brolin and, you know, to keep my story concise, he's usually the only one that I mentioned. But I did do some other stuff that I just I just give credit to the Russo brothers, basically. Like they were super cool with me and it was a it was a vibey set and it was one of the most comfortable shooting experiences I've had. It made me kind of really dig it, you know, in a way that I think I had kind of, um, maybe I'd become a little jaded, I guess, over my years in Hollywood, and I couldn't wait to get back to the theater. But having that experience, I was like, you know what, this is a really cool set. It feels good, the work is good. Um, Yeah, so basically, yeah, I just, I did all of those, the Thanos scenes. So anytime in the movie where you see Thanos talking to Gamora, he was probably talking to me and um, including her death scene. And then in... Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, I did. Josh, Josh threw me off the cliff. <laughs> 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 yeah, am going to change that, me
2: viewing that scene forever. Funny, right? It's you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Zoe is herself, you know, she is doing her own stuff. Uh, it's just, whenever you see Thanos, he is talking to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, um, and she's talking to whoever she was talking to, but, uh, but yeah, it was really fun. And then apparently I did something that earned me a credit in in-game as well. And those movies are like, it's like, um, it's like, ah! you know, like Beetlejuice. Remember when he was like, what do you really look like? And he showed him what he really looked like. <laughs> <in> his face. <laughs> so... So that right now, that's what I see when I watch the movies. It's so much going on. I'm trying to mm-hmm. wait a second now. He's and her and their friends and what's his superpower <laughs> and what's their relationship. So I'm still trying to decipher like the plot. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's dope. I know it's dope. I know it's dope. I'm just sort of in that mode. So I, I have not seen the scene that I worked on. I, I have no idea. Like what, you know, I, I in Infinity War, I went to the screening and so. plus it was much closer to me whereas you know in game it was like a couple years later and so Mm. i I don't remember it as good
2: now to our main segment the anecdotal dote here's how it works i have selected a random word that only i've seen your job is to tell a true story based on that word are you ready
0: yes your word is slam (laughs) i don't know if this is true but i'm gonna tell it anyway Right. It's my, it's my story though. Okay. So get this. I've said a few times. I'm going to stop that. So I was playing bongo or whatever, a cajon at the new Eurekan poet cafe in New York city. And, um, if you know that building, it's just like, it's a very small building and they own all the floors on it. I don't even think they exist anymore, but this was years and years ago, probably 20 plus years ago. So I'm there, and playing drums and, um, someone decides to give us a tour of the building itself. This is New Yorkers Poets Cafe, and up on like the third or fourth floor, they have the entire building. So if you know, it's like one of those skinny railroad type buildings, old school. And on the third floor, they have a costume shop that would stretch from the beginning of the from the front of the avenue all the way like to the back. And it was this incredible like space where if you were into the theater or any or costumes, it was just like a wonderland of all. And I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. So I'm hanging out in there and I'm walking through, you know, and we're probably talking like a hundred feet and I'm walking through about halfway down. There's this guy sitting in there and he's like, you know, wearing no shirt or maybe like some little white t-shirt, these little white uh, blue Daisy Dukes. And he's got like Coke bottle glasses and his head is shaved and he is just in there sewing and just like, doo-doo, like just sewing and enjoying his life and he's kind of eccentric or whatever i look to the back wall and it's covered in all this stuff and i and i'm like is that that there's a painting on the wall there and i go excuse me is that is that a basquiat right there and he goes a what and i go is that a Basquiat? Like it's that painting, it's like buried in all the stuff. He's like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, I found it a bunch of over there years ago underneath the whole bunch of other stuff. And I just pulled it out and I put it over there and now it's there. And it's just been sitting there for years and covered up. And I go, my, I think like you might have, that looks like a Basquiat painting, like pull it up and he goes back in and he pulls it up and it's got the little, um, King, you know, crown (laughs) symbol on it. And it's, you know, a mess. Like Basquiat's paintings, and it's all graffitied out, and it's just there. New Eureka Poets Cafe has been around since the '60s, and Basquiat used to hang there back in the day. Like oh that was gosh. a known haunt of his back in the day. So it wasn't like some, you know, far flung thing for me to think that this painting was a Basquiat. Right. And so I go, so I go downstairs and I and I go to the barman and I'm just sort of like very casually doing it because I kind of feel like an idiot anyway. And I was just like, hey you know, I don't want to make a weird thing or anything, but I was just up on the third floor or wherever it was. And I i think I saw this painting just back there that could, I think it was a Basquiat you And as soon as I said the word Basquiat, he was just like, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay. And then you, and then you carry on with life. And every now and again, I've had this thought, man, did I really see a Basquiat painting at the top of the new Eurekan poets cafe? Like, Was that real or did I just make that up and make such a big deal out of it in my mind? But I think that I found a Basquiat painting (laughs) in the third floor costume shop of the New Eurekan Poet Slam Poetry Cafe. Slam. (laughs) (laughs) It's a true story. I don't know if I found a Basquiat, but I like to believe that I did.
1: Now it's time for a segment called, How Did We Book These People? (laughs) So, Laura, we have been booking some pretty cool people for the past couple of episodes of the podcast. Hopefully the first of many. Um, I said earlier to many people today, I have ruined so many careers by having them come on this silly little
2: podcast. (laughs) I don't think um, we have enough listeners to ruin anybody's career.
1: I think that's why it would ruin their career.
2: <laughs> yeah, but nobody has to know. That's
1: true. That's true. <laughs> um, so I wanted to just just read out um, some of the messages that have been exchanged between us um, regarding oh, golly. how on earth we we did this. Um, so let's let's see here. I'm terrified of this interview, and then I said she was on the. F- office for two seasons (laughs) and then i said i can't podcast is over oh my god this is insanity and then my favorite exchange to you was if i die mid-interview please keep going with just this episode i need people to know that we recorded it also i want to listen from below how devastated you are (laughs) they have podcasts in hell right of course they do
2: Okay, but remember like I of course I'm not I don't want to like dig for her right now, but I was like Amina said yes. <laughs> and then I immediately spun into a panic of like ah.
1: And then you said, "Right, okay, cool. When do you want to record with her? I need to get some questions together. Ah, I'm so nervous."
2: <laughs> okay, but I have to say because this is the actual question is how did we book these people? And I was Amina directed a show at American Players Theater called Our Country's Good, and I was the assistant stage manager on it, so I worked that whole process with her.
1: And uh, Kat Moser uh, from a couple of weeks ago, I went to Governor's School for the Arts with her um, for musical theater in Kentucky in 2008. The cool thing is that everyone always talks about how small the world is, and Everyone always talks about how even smaller the theater world is. And it's so true. Um, And I was talking today when I when we were about to record the podcast with Amina that um, according to the six degrees of separation, um, I'm getting much closer to Steve Carell. And that is (laughs) that is life goals right there.
2: I love that that's like a weird life goal for you.
1: Well, well, my parents asked. They were like, "They're like, oh, so you're you're getting closer to Steve Carell?" And I was like, "Yeah, I am." <laughs> like once that realization hit, I just kind of had to like sit there for a moment because I've never been this close before. But maybe one day I'll get there. <laughs> and if he ever listens to this, I sure as hell never will.
2: <laughs> maybe he'll pity you.
1: I don't want to be a make a wish child (laughs) for Steve Carell to meet me.
2: I don't know. It works for some people. Maybe he'll love our podcast so much that he'll just be dying to meet us.
1: I would. That's every episode. I always, in the back of my head, am like, I'm doing this for you, Steve. If listeners could not tell, we've had, we've done kind of like an overhaul of the podcast recently, and we've kind of changed things up and tried to make things a little, a little tighter, a little more modern. Um, And I don't know, how do we, how do we keep this thing, how do we keep this going? This is incredible.
2: More famous people. (laughs) More people with Wikipedia pages.
1: (laughs) That's a low bar. Jeffrey Dahmer has a Wikipedia page. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And special thanks to today's guest, Amina Kaplan.
2: Have a question or need some anecdotal advice on a subject? (laughs) Send them to us and it might be shared on a future podcast. Send your questions, comments, and stories to us written, filmed, or by audio at theanecdotaldote at gmail.com.
1: And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast
2: write us a review, and share this podcast with your friends.
1: Remember, everyone has a story to tell, especially you. So send them in. We're excited to listen.
2: Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Wow, I'm really bad at reading scripts. Listening to the most recent episode, I was like, yeah, that's rough. Let me try that again.
1: That's exactly why I stopped doing the scripted end segments to this and I was like, let's just free ball it because she sounds she makes she makes Carrie Underwood in The Sound of Music Live sound like Meryl Streep.
2: <laughs> that might be one of the most offensive things you've ever said to me. <laughs> that's that's uh... brutal. Wow.